Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Thursday, February 9th. Remember, uh, there is a mayoral forum. Uh, Mike Flannery from Fox 32 is going to be questioning the candidates We are also on this show uh, making an offer to each and every one of the mayoral candidates to join us to talk about their agenda. If uh, they've been attacked, they can respond to their attackers Uh, tomorrow from 3.30 to 4. From 3.30 to 4, I'm going to be joined by Paul Vallis. So here's probably the best way uh, for this to work. Um, If you have a question... For Paul Vallis, why don't you text it in? You know, our regular line, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. You can call us if you just dial that, or if you go to your texting function and use that same number, you can send me a text that I get on my computer. So tomorrow we are going to be spending a half an hour with Paul Vallis from 3.30 to 4. If there are any questions you specifically want me to ask Mr. Vallis, let me know. Otherwise, I am uh, planning to just kind of hit him with the greatest hits. Uh, you know, uh, he's being accused of being a Republican. Um, he needs to clarify his position on a woman's right to choose and... You know, so the real obvious things I probably already have. But if there's something specific that has occurred to you, something you saw maybe during our forum or something you've read about since, um, then we'll talk about it. One thing that uh, I don't plan to talk to him about right now, though, is, you know, there's Block Club Chicago and the tribe have been reporting on uh, the fact that his son, who was a police officer in Austin, Texas, was involved in a shooting. Son is white. The victim was black. Um, as I'm, I don't really want to talk to people about stuff their kids have done. I never talked to Tony Preckwinkle about any of the trouble her son got in. And while some people say, well, it's relevant because he's a law and order candidate, I don't agree with that. Plus, the shooting was investigated and his son was cleared. So it, to me, it's it's maybe something worth noting, but not really. I don't really see where there's a point for discussion there. If you disagree with me, send me a text and explain to me what question you'd like me to ask about that or anything else and why. Uh, and I will try to get those questions in since we only have 30 minutes. I don't know that I will open up the phone lines because that takes a lot of time, more time than just me paraphrasing a request that came in via text. So for now, let's plan to uh, text in. If you have questions, text them into me, okay? That, I think, is the best way to uh, get going on this. Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, the news of the day. We didn't really spend much time, any time, talking, uh, updating the situation in Turkey. Um, The New York Times, eight minutes ago, (sighs) 
posted a death toll update that the death toll in Turkey and Syria, where they experienced a 7.8 quake, I think followed by a 7.5, they believe more than 20,000 people are dead. 20,000. There are some pictures on the homepage for the New York Times. I guess they've taken a parking lot and they've turned it into a temporary morgue and it is just body after body after body after body. One of the things that rescuers do in a situation like this is um, they try to listen for voices. That way, if there is anybody who is left alive under the rubble, they know where to concentrate their efforts. By all reports, there haven't been any voices lately. Doesn't mean they're going to stop digging. And maybe if we're lucky, there will still be a miracle or two for somebody somewhere. But the death toll is now surpassing 20,000 people. I, I mean, I can't even, I can't even really wrap my head around that. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's like we took the t- entire town of Wilmette and just wiped it off the map. Anyway, um, as you heard at the news at the top of the hour, um, if you have any deity that you regularly pray to, eh, shoot him a little, shoot him a little note about John Fetterman. You know, one thing I will tell you from having had cancer and, you know, people wonder, well, he, he was feeling he was at a Democratic meeting, the, the, the senator from Pennsylvania. He was feeling lightheaded. He had uh, right before the election, he'd had a stroke. So um, he went to the went to the hospital to get checked out. Now, it is possible because, you know what, people don't usually share what's going on with them medically until they know exactly what's going on with them medically. Is it possible that there's more to the story? Maybe we'll find out. And doctors are saying, though, that they don't believe that there's been another stroke. But when something really catastrophic has happened to you, heart attack, stroke, cancer, (laughs) this is the way one doctor explained it to me, that from that point on, you become a hot potato. You know, if I was feeling a little lightheaded and contacted my doctor, she'd probably just say, you know, drink a glass of water and put your head between your knees. But for somebody who's had a stroke... And you're a little lightheaded that it's all hands on deck. You know how they say that they teach doctors when you see symptoms, don't think of zebras, think of horses, because it's much whatever you you're diagnosing. It's much more likely to be horses than zebras, which are rarer. But once you've had a catastrophic medical incident, for some reason, it seems like (laughs) doctors go right into zebra land. Oh, my gosh, this is happening to you. And not too long ago, I don't know, six, eight months ago, I had a small, what turned out to be um, benign tumor taken off my back. But it was toward the middle of my back where my lymph nodes are. And you know I had lymphoma. 
So I'm feeling this thing and I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's probably nothing. People, as they age, they get these lumps and bumps. It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. And after a year of that, um, when I don't know if it changed or if I just felt like it changed. Is it a little harder than it used to be? Is it a little bigger than it used to be? Hmm. I just had it taken out. And it was benign. Uh, it wasn't a fatty tumor. It actually um, had a lot of, um, was probably um, an angioma. It had a lot of blood vessels in it, which made it a little firmer. But you know what? It was a, it was a little lump right near where I knew I had lymph nodes. And I went right to worst case scenario. And that's what happens when you've had a stroke or when you've come back from a heart attack or when you are um, a cancer survivor. So if there was something serious, we will find out about it because this stuff never stays secret for long. But it is also possible that symptoms that you or I might have just waved off are the kind of symptoms that from now on are going to cause John Fetterman to seek out medical attention. It's just the way it is. And if you don't know what I'm talking about because you've never experienced it, then you are one lucky person. Let's hope it stays that way. Um, one final thing, real quick note before we uh, take a break. Bert Bacharach, Bert, Bert Bacharach died. Uh, he was and maybe not the world's greatest singer, but man, oh man, could that guy write. Ray and I, um, last a year ago, fall, we went to see Tom Jones at the Chicago Theater, and he told a story about Burt Bacharach that when Tom Jones first broke big, he was in his 20s, and he'd had a hit song, and he was, I guess, um, he he got word that Burt Bacharach wanted to talk to him about recording one of his songs, and he went over to his apartment, and Bert was like, okay, this is the song. It's it's going to be the main song for a movie that's coming out. Um, let me sing it for you. And Tom Jones said he thought he was being punked. He thought it was a joke because he said Bert Backrack sung this screechy, unintelligible bit of music. He really thought that it was all a big practical joke bringing him here. But he said Bert gave him like a cassette tape of the song and said, you know, sit with it for a while. And Tom Jones said he did, and he eventually recorded it. It was the hit song, What's New Pussycat? One of Tom Jones' bigger hits. But he said it was unintelligible what the music was supposed to be like, what the lyrics were like when Bert sang it himself. <laughs> Clearly, uh, he had a lot of affection for the guy, though. He supposedly was a really nice man. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more news right after this. The Santita Jackson Show. During the Olympics, we want to see these women, and we are excited that they win, and the viewership is extremely high. They could twin the games. They could do that. They could make a business decision to grow the league. They could do that because these women, essentially, they are being forced to get a second job. That is really hard on the body. 
I mean, this is awful. The Santita Jackson Show, weekday mornings at 6 on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We do have an election coming up February 28th, not just in Chicago. There are other communities that will also be going to the polls. But in Chicago, it also isn't just a race for mayor. There are going to be at least 15 um, aldermanic seats that are wide open because the previous alder person either is running for mayor, Roderick Sawyer, Sophia King, or they've run for election and they've won another job or they're retiring, Tom Tunney. Um, so... We are going to be focusing on those races as well as the candidates for mayor. As a matter of fact, uh, today we're going to be talking to uh, a candidate who is running to replace Sophia King in the fourth ward and another candidate who is running to replace retiring James Kappelman from Chicago's 46th ward. We are going to be continuing all of those discussions as we proceed. Um a little bit of news. I I don't want to get your hopes up because I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But um, there are seven House congressional Democrats who have gone on record as uh, saying that they want to evict, expel, oust. New York Republican Congressman George Santos. Uh, one of those, Representative Robert Garcia, has already taken some steps to put together a resolution to expel him. Um, George Santos, by the way, even though Kevin McCarthy named him to two committees, George Santos, Anthony DeVolder, Katara, named to two committees, George Santos resigned from those committees. Um, he gave some nonsense reason, like, you know, he doesn't want to be a distraction. He's actually being investigated right now by the House Ethics Committee, but I don't know how much clout that's going to have. And frankly, this effort by Democrats is probably going to go nowhere as well because it takes a two-thirds vote by Congress to kick somebody out of Congress. And I, frankly, I know that there are a number of Republicans who are appalled, appalled, I tell you, they're appalled, they're shocked. They're just shocked by George Santos and the fact that he got elected. But will they vote to kick him out? Don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. You know, it's um, it's not going to happen. If it ever comes to a vote, I promise you, the vote will split along party lines. Even the supposed moderates, the supposed adults in the room, they're they're just not. They're not. They talk a great game, but when it comes time to register a vote, they fall into line. They fall into line. They've done it every time so far, and I see no reason to believe that they won't do it going forward. 
So, yeah, Democrats, fine. Pass, get that resolution written. Pass it around. And then all the Democrats are going to vote for it and all the Republicans are going to vote against it. It will not be a two thirds majority. And George Santos will sit there with a smug smile on his face. At this point, um, I don't even have that much. I mean, the ethics committee, what are they going to say? Ooh, he did some bad things. Well, hello. Probably our best shot for getting rid of him right now is if um, the lawyers in Brazil bring criminal fraud charges against him, which they are supposedly investigating right now. I don't know if being convicted of a crime in another country prohibits you from being a congressman, because trust me, this guy is not going to go quietly. He's said as much. He's going to sit there and nobody's going to do anything about it. So um, we might as well just get used to it. The Republicans are going to have to get used to it because none of them have enough of a spine to do anything about it. Talk is cheap. And so far, all we get from even the supposed adults in the Republican Party is talk. I thought um I'm switching gears a little bit, going over to uh, Shia Kapos, Illinois Playbook today. It was really interesting. She was writing about a meeting of the House Agriculture Committee. Now, admittedly, if you live in northern Illinois, that's probably not something that's on your calendar as something to watch and pay attention to. But it's really interesting because four Congress people, four Congress people from Illinois are on these House Agriculture Committees. Jonathan Jackson, Mary Miller, Nikki Budzinski, Eric Sorensen, Republicans and Democrats. Um, but it looks like, oh dear, do I even, do I even say this? Do I even hold out this hope to us? Let me put it this way. Shia Kapos thinks that it looks like the four of them, despite party differences, and you know Mary Miller, she's uh, one of those real radical right Congress people. They might just come up with a consensus, despite their differing districts, uh, their different demographics, and uh, their different ideas about policy. Apparently, there is a crossover. You know, we take our two circles and we make our Venn diagram and we look at that little part in the middle where everything lines up and everything crosses over. We apparently have one of those. Um, and one of the things that they want, they all want to do, even Mary Miller um, said that she wants to focus on risk management, pursuing trade deals. She wants to prevent China from buying our farmland, which I didn't even know was a thing. And she wants to take measures to preserve family farms. Uh, they're also going to be looking at things like biofuels, which are generally, as you know, uh, generated from corn and soybean. Those are big crops in uh, Nikki Budzinski's district. So this is going to be quite possibly, quite possibly, an interesting committee to watch and maybe, oh God, I hope I don't eat these words. Maybe there will actually be bipartisan consensus 
I guess every five years, a lot of the policies and rules for the agriculture department, they're revisited and re rewritten. So this is a big deal. And wouldn't it be nice, not just because there's four Illinois members and we could kind of say, look at us, but wouldn't it be nice if there was a committee where people came together and really did something, you know, for the greater good? Yeah, I know. I know that's what elected office is supposed to be about. But as you know, over the last, oh, it started even before Trump. Over the last many years, it seems like even committee meetings are about winning or losing, not about what's best for the people. Wouldn't it be great if we led the way with this agriculture committee and showed the rest of Congress how it could be done? We'll see. I know, I know, I know you're saying to yourself, Joan, Have you been paying attention? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have been paying attention. But I still think, I still think it's possible. Does that make me naive, do you think? And I'm not saying that Mary Miller and Jonathan Jackson are going to, you know, become best pals and best friends and write all kinds of legislation together going forward. I just think that our government work works best when politicians remember that there are no permanent friends, there are no permanent enemies, there are only aligned interests. And I think we have a situation here where interests are aligning. We can uh, we can only hope. We can only hope. We have a really interesting uh, show for you today. Lots of new people joining us today. We're going to be talking to a reporter, a senior political reporter for Salon.com, who wrote a fascinating take on what DeSantis is doing to turn Florida into a state that is waging war on books. Yeah, that's um, it's just really something you got to hear to believe. We're going to talk about affordable housing, and we are going to talk with a reporter from the tribe about Chewy Garcia, who is, choose your poll. Um, Every candidate will show you a poll where they are a front runner, but let's look at this realistically. The top three people are probably Chewy, Lori Lightfoot, Paul Vallis. And running very close to them would be Brandon Johnson and possibly Willie Wilson out of your nine candidates. We will talk about all this and more. Let's take a break and get started with our day right after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
One of the aldermanic races that we are going to be keeping an eye on is the race to be the new alder person for the 46th Ward. That is where James Kappelman has been the alderman. He is retiring. There are a number of candidates, Angela Clay, Kim Walls, Patrick Nagel, Roshonda Williams, Marianne Lalonde, all going to try to be um, the ones who take over that seat. One of those folks, Marianne Lalonde, came in second to Kappelman back in 2019. She joins us now to talk about her new effort to take over that seat. Marianne, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Joan. So uh, I I know that Kim Walls has gotten a lot of attention in this race. She's uh, had a lot of pretty high profile government government backers, but in 2019 you very nearly took this seat. Tell me why you wanted to try again. Well, the same issues exist in 2023 that did in 2019. We have a really diverse community and I want to make sure that all of the voices in our ward are amplified on city council. Um, I did lose in 2019, but it didn't stop me from keeping my community activism going. I've been working on the uh, elevating the Redefine the Drive project, making sure community feedback is incorporated there. Um, and uh, several new developments that have gone in. I've been active in the fight against the development that is going in at Weiss Hospital. Um, and I want to continue my work there, making sure that residents' voices are heard. It's even more important this time. I'm a scientist by training. Um, uh, and uh, to have a sustainability expert on city council, when we haven't had a Department of the Environment since 2011, I think would be a really valuable addition. Let's talk about one of those issues. You said that you have been uh, working against the planned development for Weiss Hospital. Talk to us about that issue. Yes. Um, so the development is passed. It's under construction right now. But we fought really hard against it um, as a block club and back starting between 2019 and 2021. And part of the reason was because Weiss had been acquired by a new owner, Pipeline Health, um, that had a reputation for closing hospitals. They closed Westlake Hospital um, in another part of the city. And we were really worried that once Pipeline got Weiss, they would close it. It's such a valuable asset for our community. It's the largest employer in the ward. And we were uh, suspicious when they wanted to build a residential property uh, adjacent to the emergency uh, room bay. Um, fortunately, uh, we were uh, the hospital is now owned by a third owner, Resilience Healthcare, um, after Pipeline declared bankruptcy shortly after the residential project began. So where is the project at this moment? And have you changed your stance about it? Uh our ultimate goal was to keep the hospital open, and the hospital will remain open even though the ownership has changed a third time. So that was successful. Uh, the residential development that we were fighting is currently under construction. It's going up right now. Wow. You talked about wanting to be the voice for your ward uh, in the Chicago City Council. Other than Weiss Hospital, what are some of the other things that people in your ward want to see get done? Oh, they really care a lot about public safety. I think it's the biggest issue in this election, um, and that includes public safety on the CTA. We've got a number of express buses in our ward that a lot of people use to commute downtown, as well as two L stations, uh, Wilson and Sheridan and Lawrence when it reopens in 2025. Um, and folks are really looking for uh, to feel good about 
riding transit again, um, and that's safety and reliability coming when uh, the tracker says that it will be coming. People are, are really getting frustrated there. Have there been um, violent incidents or just a problem of ghost trains and ghost buses, which, by the way, for the audience, if you don't live somewhere where there's public transportation, you know, there's supposed to be a train or a bus that shows up at 440 to the number five to take you somewhere. And it's 440 and you're looking at your app and all of a sudden the bus that was supposed to pull up any second now just disappears off the app. Like it was never there. And then you have to figure out if you want to sit around and wait for the next one or for or find an alternate form of transportation. I think reliability is the bigger issue here, but people are feeling unsafe, specifically on the train. Um, on the train, I think we've seen the quality of service go down since pre-pandemic. Um, and it's uh not just in terms of incidents, but also people just not following the rules. Um, I've heard complaints about uh, smoking, urination, things where the CTA used to have an atmosphere of respect for other passengers, and it's just not the same as it used to be. Yeah, I've heard that particularly, too, especially with regards to to smoking. You're not allowed to smoke on a CTA bus, but... Apparently, nobody is there to enforce it. And so, you know, it's not really the bus driver's responsibility to try to uh, enforce rules um, that sometimes puts the bus driver in safety crosshairs. So if, you know, if you're on the bus and you want to smoke and you don't really care about the rules or anybody else, then you get the problem of people who smoke regularly on the buses what is the solution to that? Is the solution to have more police on the buses? I think this is a staffing issue. CTA is incredibly short-staffed right now. Some of uh, the CTA operators are working 80-hour weeks. Uh, we've got to return CTA to normal staffing levels and make a plan for that over time. That could be um, leveraging uh, folks graduating from our city colleges looking for work or local schools, but creating a pipeline of employment back into the CTA and returning the unarmed conductors that were eliminated in 1998 for the trains uh, might help with uh, some rule enforcement. But there have been arguments that if you if you really want the trains to be safe, it should be police that that somebody that everybody knows doesn't have a weapon might not be able to might not be able to convince people who are breaking the rules to not break the rules. What do you think about that? I understand. And Chicago uh, Police District does have a transit division. Um, I think communicating between a conductor and the transit division and making sure that somebody is able to respond if police are needed for a situation um, is important. But uh, I know I don't think that we need um, weapons to be on the train. We're in a really delicate um, area in terms of uh, public safety when we've got uh, on one hand where we're wanting police to be accountable by fulfilling their responsibilities and making sure that they're enforcing the rules. And on the other hand, we have um, issues where uh, throughout the nation where people are responding with inappropriate use of force. And we don't want that to happen on CTA trains either. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I think, has to do with training. I was um, I've been talking. Well, last year uh, we talked a lot about 
whether or not Chicago public schools should have police officers. And it's obviously a matter that the local school councils are deciding on a case by case basis. But one person I talked to said, you know, you don't you shouldn't just grab even if the school wants a police presence, you shouldn't don't just grab any officer and throw them there. But you need to hire special people who have a real aptitude for this, who have a tolerance for kids. And then you have to train them because that's a job that's different than regular policing. And also, too, you have to make sure every police officer knows what they're there to do and not to do, because part of the problem was that some schools were using police as almost disciplinarians. Oh, this this kid isn't listening. You know, you should arrest them for disorderly conduct. Um, it's it seems like we're in a sort of a similar situation with public transportation. We want it to be safe, but we don't want to have to fear the people who are there to try to make it safe by the by the same token. OK, moving on from from public safety. What other issues really are uh, important to the people of your 46th ward? One additional issue that comes up a lot in the south part of the ward, especially, is the new Redefine the Drive project. Um, so that's going to be a complete renovation and redesign of Lakeshore Drive from Grand Avenue to the Hollywood Terminus. The 46th Ward is a major part of that. Um, it includes right now a widened pavement footprint, um, which would require a, a little bit of landfill into Belmont Harbor, um, removal of the tennis courts at Waveland to provide a bus turnaround at Addison, a new ramp at Addison, elimination of the ramp at Wilson. These are all part of the current plans that our neighbors are really concerned about um, and uh, largely opposed to. This is a project that's been going on since 2013, and the design phase will end at the end of 2023. And neighbors are really fighting to get their voices heard about this project. Have there been neighborhood hearings? Well, in 2018, I added a referendum to the ballot in the north part of the ward about the Wilson on-off ramp closure. Um, and uh, there were three neighborhood meetings in response to that, but the plans have still not changed, even though 95% of voters uh, voted that they the ramp was really important to keep in our neighborhood, and there were 13,000 people. What is... I mean, I drive on Lakeshore Drive. <clears throat> uh, it, it doesn't seem to be broken. Why are we fixing it? There are some infrastructure upgrades that are needed um, in terms of uh, like the uh, structural integrity of the viaducts. Um, Lakeshore Drive is from the 1930s, so uh, it is time for us to make sure that um, the infrastructure will hold up into the future. Um, but otherwise, you know, the motivation is really to uh, move faster during the commute. It's a CDOT and IDOT project and largely um, run by traffic engineers. And I think the sentiment of our community is that we really appreciate Lakeshore Drive as a boulevard um, and want to emphasize uh um, safe and easy access points to the lakefront um, and uh, slower pace of traffic to keep bicycles and pedestrians safe. Years ago, <clears throat> I read a book called Traffic, which is not necessarily um, <laughs> the sort of book that I would regularly pick up, Marianne, but I had heard an interview with the author on the radio, and it it was fascinating 
because they studied stuff like like you know when you're you're in you're there's two lanes of traffic but then there are signs that say the left lane is ending in a mile you know are you should you get over then or you know do you get mad at the people who stay till the last minute and then cut in and they analyzed all these and, and and had explanations for what you should do in different situations and here's one of the things that I took away from that he said that it's really faulty logic to think that if you add more lanes that traffic will move faster because what they found in their research was you add more lanes you make it more attractive to more people who then get on those lanes and they end up being just as crowded as they were before because when you expand a freeway or an expressway or any kind of multi-lane um system you draw more people. Oh, look, there's five lanes. That's going to move like lightning. You know, instead of go, instead of taking the Kennedy in, let's go over and we'll come in on Lakeshore Drive. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this. Marianne, we need to take a quick break. I'm talking to Marianne Lalonde. She's a candidate for the 46th Ward seat that James Kappelman is retiring from. We're going to talk about more than just roads when we come back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Marianne Lalonde, who is a candidate to be the next older person in the 46th Ward, where James Kappelman is retiring. She's a scientist, and one of her areas of expertise is sustainability. That is an issue that she would like to take on as a member of the Chicago City Council. Marianne, in, in, when it comes to this, um, what more should we be doing, or are we doing some things that we should stop doing? What does that mean, making sustainability a, a bigger issue with the city council? Well, one thing that we could definitely be doing better is recycling. Our recycling rate is abysmal compared to other major cities. It's only 9%. Um, so if you put something into a blue bin in Chicago, you've got a 1 in 10 chance that it, it will actually be recycled. So we need to... That, Why is that? that? Do they just... Uh, so, do the blue bins show up somewhere and somebody says, I'm tired today, I'm just going to throw all this in the garbage? Why is that? I think there's there's a joint solution here, and one is making sure that we've got the right public-private partnership um, for our recycling. So for a while, we were using the same uh, hauler for waste as we were for recycling. So the waste hauler um, could get paid by uh, a rejected recycling bin because they're also hauling um, uh-huh. non-recyclable waste. Uh, and um, another is just um, resident education. So uh, people are really surprised about what you can throw into a blue bin that would contaminate it. For example, one thing that I was really surprised to learn was that you can't recycle paper that's been shredded. Um, it has to be whole. Um, really? So- I didn't know that. Yeah. I put all my shredded paper in the recycling. <laughs> that's so uh, weird. And. And with the you know trace food contaminants, like a pizza box is not going to be recyclable. Um, so we want to make sure that people know exactly what can go into the blue bin and then that our uh, waste haulers are being responsible with that. And another um, great opportunity that we would have in terms of ways to be adding a municipal composting program. Um, a lot of uh, blocks already have a block bin um, 
with a private composter and um I've seen some success there just in our ward with people really uh, wanting to compost and uh, dispose of their organic waste in a more sustainable way, too. I've been under the impression, and I hope you'll tell me that this is wrong, that, you know, when you have a recycling container, if you screw up in one way, let's let's say, you know, every you've got a bunch of bottles in there, but then there's a pizza box Rather than taking the time to sort through your bin, what's good and what's not, if workers see a bin that has something contaminated, that they just turn the whole bin over to the trash. Do you have any knowledge of whether that's true or not? That's always what I've been told. Yes, I do think that's true. Ugh, I was afraid of that. Because, you know, we have big fights in this house about whether or not something's clean enough to go in the recycling and that's always been one of my worries that if we if we don't get the whole thing right, that we might as well not even waste our time, uh, our time with it. Um, so those are really important. How would a, how would a, a community wide composting system work? So just like you have your blue bin and your uh, trash bin, um, some blocks in the 46 ward also have a composting bin. And because it's a smaller amount of waste, it's usually just one per block. And different um, composting companies can come and pick up that organic waste. And there are different regulations um, depending on what composter you're using and what kind of methods they're using for composting. But any type of um, vegetable food waste can go in there, Um, often uh, like egg carton type of cardboard. Um, Newspapers can be composted. Uh, But it's just another way for us to reduce our landfill waste uh, as a city. And the bonus of composting is that it creates really great soil for gardening. Yeah. And because there is money to be made in high-quality compost, does that mean these programs, if we have a company that's picking up, you know, our banana peels and our orange rinds and things like that, would would there still be a payment involved or because they're going to make money on the other end, is it a zero-sum game? You know, I think that's something the city could explore. One of um, a, a great thing that we did with uh, MWRD for a while was MWRD was extracting elemental phosphorus from wastewater, and they were selling that as fertilizer um, to other states. So we were literally converting our, our waste into a revenue stream. Um, and I think that's something we could explore doing with composting as well. Absolutely. Anything that um, gets rid of waste and brings in more money is, I think, exactly what a municipality should be looking into. Um, I also wanted to touch on another area that I know is one that you have looked into, and that is what to do about the people who are unhoused. I was just reading this morning in Eric Zorn's Picayune Sentinel. Eric Zorn filled in for me when I was uh, off in Los Angeles visiting my daughter. And one of the people he interviewed was uh, somebody who works with an organization to try to help people who are unhoused. And, man, the statistics, the statistics are really bad. We've lost a lot of shelter beds Some shelter beds are now being allotted to those who are here because they're asylum seekers. Um, Basically, it sounds like it's a problem that's getting worse, not better. What do you see and what do you want to do about it? 
It's a problem that's definitely going to require collaboration from all of the aldermen on the north side. We have seen our populations of our tent cities grow. Um, There are tent cities under the Wilson and Lawrence viaducts in Uptown, and there are also um, tent cities in Rogers Park and Tui Park. Um, Making sure that we have the right uh, number of shelter beds for the demand is really important. Right now, we're short shelters specifically for single men on the north side, which is the highest uh, level of demographic that experiences homelessness. So that's really difficult. And then also, we have to think about the level of mental illness that people are living with um, who are experiencing homelessness and uh, consider um, alternative solutions. So some people may be hesitant to go into a shelter situation because it's a cohabitative uh, living scenario and they're used Mm -hmm. to having some independence um, by being in individual tents. So one pilot that's underway is to purchase entire um, abandoned motels and to move the entire tent community into the motel that gives um, still an opportunity for people to interact with each other like they um, did in their community. And then also that privacy of having your own individual space. Um, So I believe that's happening in the 40th ward right now. And uh, I'm really interested to see the results. Well, that was actually one of the scenarios that he talked about because apparently the money uh, that was previously used to support and acquire more shelter spots. So that money is now being used for things like this, for housing. But everybody forgot about the the transition period. And so this guy was saying that, like, the number of shelter beds has been reduced by something like 40%, and yet a lot of these housing units are not really ready to come online. So what he said his organization has seen is, People living on the street, the numbers have skyrocketed because apparently nobody realized, oh, we're going to shift this money here. And oh, my gosh, there's going to be this period in between where um, people are just kind of out of luck. And from your understanding, when something like these abandoned motels are purchased, how long does it take to get those up and running? I mean, are we looking at a transition period of years here? I'm not sure of the the timeline, Um, but of course the need is immediate right now. I mean, we are definitely, it's, it's the middle of winter. So the the need to house people is um, right away and people should, we should definitely be offering what's available in terms of our current shelter situation um, as we start to bring some of these new ideas online. I'm aware also of a pilot with tiny houses um, that would also allow for some individual living. But again, I'm not sure of the timeline to get those up to speed. And and you're, you're right. I mean, we do have a lot fewer shelter beds available, but there have always been people who didn't want to go to shelters, either because they didn't feel that they were safe or they didn't feel that their possessions were safe, or um, maybe they have a dog and the shelter won't take the animal and they don't want to abandon it. It's uh, It's... It's not a black and white issue. There's a lot of complexity to it, a lot of gray to it, and I think it's going to take a lot of different approaches. And I'm glad to see that you're interested in a lot of different approaches. Okay, we've talked about public safety, transportation, sustainability, uh, the unhoused. In the minute or so we have left, is there anything else you want to touch on? Or any message you want to make sure you leave our listeners with? (laughs) Um, 
I think you really hit on the four biggest issues that are going on in the 46th Ward right now. So uh, kudos for identifying those. Um, you know, it's it's my second time running, and uh, I uh, I love the 46th Ward so much. I just really would love the opportunity to uh, continue my community activism work and then also have the um, the ability to affect even more change uh, as an elected official. Um, I think our community is ready for uh, something new. We've uh, had a, a lot of uh, economic development and growth over the last 12 years. And um, now I think we are looking to uh, just come together as a community and make sure that we're helping each other out as neighbors. If people want to find out more information about this campaign, you can go to the website, www.marianne46.com. And Marianne is M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E-F-O-R-46. Marianne46.com. Marianne, thank you so much for being here. Um, And good luck in your race to be the next older person for the 46th Ward. Thank you so much, Joan. We are going to be taking a break. We're going to have news at the top of the hour. And when we come back, we are going to be uh, talking to that reporter I told you about from Salon.com who uh, wrote about what Ron DeSantis and Florida are trying to do when it comes to reading, when it comes to books in that state. We'll be back with more after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 a.m. or stream us live on WCPT820.com, the TuneIn radio app, or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. We've mentioned this on this show, but we probably haven't spent enough time on it. There is a real war going on right now. School libraries, public libraries, books in general. We've talked about it. With uh, lots of people from library associations, we've talked about things going on all around the country. But man, oh, man, we need to pay more attention to what is going on in Florida. Ron DeSantis is bringing about some of the most egregious policies of any of the states that we have looked at when we have talked about this issue one of the people who is paying attention to it is a senior writer for Salon.com, Amanda Marcotte, who joins us now. Uh, in the last week of January, she wrote an article that was titled, Sorry, Twitter, but Florida's war on books is no joke. Ron DeSantis wants to keep kids from reading. In Florida schools, every book is considered too dangerous until censors have have covered it, have looked it over, have approved it. Amanda joins us now to talk about this. Amanda, welcome to our radio show. Thank you so much for taking time to talk about your work. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this about this article. For my listeners who 
um, maybe haven't been listening to me for the last year, run them through what is going on in Florida. So Ron DeSantis has passed a series of laws, the Don't Say Gay Law, the Stop Woke Act, et cetera, et cetera, all end up basically the same thing, which is creating this atmosphere of fear and intimidation in schools around anything that is about race or gender or anything of that nature in a book characterizing um, anything they consider woke as dangerous to kids and threatening teachers with felony convictions if they let a kid read a book that is quote unquote woke. So this, they haven't really given them lists of banned books or anything, the old traditional way of banning books. They just, you know, have these extremely vague guidelines about overly woke books and massive threats of going to prison And so, unsurprisingly, what school districts are doing is telling teachers on the safe side, no books at all. And so, teachers uh, have been posting photos of having to lock up their classroom libraries, put paper over them, put police tape over them, anything to keep the kids from touching a forbidden book. And and at this point, basically, most books are forbidden. You know, the Florida government, Republicans have been defending themselves by saying, you know, the books will be put back on the shelf once they're vetted. Uh, We're starting to get, first of all, like the vetting is, you know, pointedly slow, making it so that like only one book at a time, if that can be released, which is not really very helpful to teachers. Second of all, we're starting to get lists of the books that have been yanked from the shelves. And just as everyone suspected, um, it's, it's basically, if it's not right-wing propaganda, kids can't have it. Ugh. And actually, when you look at it, vague guidelines for what book is okay and what book isn't, that's actually more dangerous than specific guidelines. Because when you don't know, as a teacher, where the lines are, You don't know whether or not you're crossing them. Um, Most teachers are really not interested in that kind of grief, whether or not it would ever actually result in somebody being arrested or prosecuted. You know, you just don't need that kind of, of, of grief. So vague guidelines are really accomplishing what is amounting to nearly a total book ban, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, think about it. If the school tells you that, you can't have any woke books on your shelf. We don't know what woke means. You're going to just lock up all the books. And let's think about also what kind of signal that sends to the kids. Even if some books slowly get re-added to the library, the kids watched you lock up all the books and basically send a message that books themselves are inherently dangerous, that, that thinking is dangerous, that reading is dangerous, that it's so dangerous that you need to have the state come in and verify every word before they let you, God forbid, read a book. Like the whole point of this exercise is to make kids afraid of reading, to make kids, you know, afraid of being curious, to, to send the message that learning itself is dangerous and bad. There's just no other way to think about this. And, you know, I know that Ron DeSantis doesn't care because the fact of the matter is he's an authoritarian 
And from the authoritarian point of view, thinking is bad. Learning is bad because somebody who thinks for themselves and learns is not going to be as open to being controlled by an authoritarian government. It really does get um, to be very much of a bigger issue and a bigger problem when you pull back. I saw an interesting article that said that I don't know what organization, I don't know if they just did this in Florida or if they just did this with people who have registered as Republicans, but they asked them if they were opposed to being woke or wokeness and the majority said yes. And then they asked them to tell them what being woke meant and the vast majority couldn't define it. Yeah. And again, we're starting to get books articles that are coming now saying what books have been officially banned, um, permanently banned, and we're getting a good idea of what the Florida government thinks is woke. So books that have been banned, uh, a book got banned because it featured a same-sex wedding. This was called Pornography. Oh. Just, yeah, just by having a same-sex wedding, there was no nudity, no sex, just two men getting married, just like a man and a woman getting married. Man and woman get married, that's fine in the state of Florida. A man and a man get married. That's called pornography. Uh, books about Rosa Parks and other civil rights leaders have been banned. They've been called critical race theory, whatever that means. As far as I can tell, critical race theory just means any book that acknowledges racism ever happened. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at. I, you know, it, it, it's clear that these standards are meant to create a situation where few, if any books are allowed through and when they are allowed through, it's only because they paint a picture of the world. Like it's a 1950s sitcom, like leave it to beaver. You know, people always joke about Florida that it's, that it's so crazy because it's populated by extremely senior citizens and also the mega wealthy who are hiding out there uh, to try to uh, live someplace where they can be taxed a little a little less. But despite that sort of joking, stereotypical description of who lives in Florida, there have to be people living in the state of Florida who are horrified by this in your reporting and you're looking into this. Are there any organizations that are fighting back? That's a good question. I think there are some that are forming. Um, I haven't heard too much about them. I think um, right now a lot of people are kind of lost as to what to do. Um, I, I think that, unfortunately, there is a structural advantage to the conservative slash authoritarian side, which is... Um, it is the way I would put this is the the people that are pushing for the book bans are not generally, despite the misleading reporting and and political language around this, are not generally parents. Um, I and that's that's actually that. something when I've talked to people from the Library Association, uh, that's what they've told me that there are certain right wing groups that um, have targeted especially certain books, and they write up these templates, and they send people to, whether it's school board meetings or whatever, these aren't parents. They're not even always people who live in the area, 
but they subscribe to these beliefs and they, they, you know, somebody has said to them, this is how you write your complaint. This is what goes into it. And because they, the library association was finding that in the book challenges that they've been registering, there are thousands of them that have the exact same language. That isn't by accident. Yeah. Um, one group I, w- I looked at, the Manatee Patriots, they had forms on their website, um, basically form letters to send to, to schools and libraries um, complaining about certain books being taught in the class or being available to kids, and it was very formulaic. Um, they had little one-sheeters explaining why the books were supposedly offensive. None of these people had read the book. Uh, I went to their Facebook pages and took a look at the folks in the group. Uh, you know, honestly, like the average age looked to be in their late 60s, early 70s. So we're not talking about people that have kids in school, mm-hmm. and grandkids. And this isn't a slur against older people. It's just that I think that you have a bunch of older people, older Republicans who are retired and have a lot of time on their hands to be getting into other people's business And then on the side of being for books and for children's education, you have a lot of, you know, working age parents who do not have the time to to fight back and may not even know how bad this is. And, you know, again, I think CRT, as you mentioned, is is a lot like woke. Um, People don't know what it is. They don't understand where it came from. It's just um, we don't want. Um, you know, that's part of that. We don't want our kids really, we really, Amanda, don't really want them to learn about slavery in any detail because, you know, Amanda, they might feel bad about themselves or, you know, they might not have, have pride in themselves if they learn about, about some of these things. You know, God forbid a student should be upset by anything they learn, which I think educators just find so utterly hilarious. Because, I mean, that's basically what education is, is upsetting your worldview um, to bring you new facts about the way the world really is and not just what you think it might be. Um, we need to take a break. Um, I'm talking to Amanda Marcotte. She also has a newsletter called Standing Room Only that you can subscribe to, as well as her writing on Salon.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Amanda Marcotte, who is a senior political reporter with Salon.com. She also has a newsletter called Standing Room Only. I asked her to join me because I wanted to talk about the efforts to ban books, particularly in Florida. But... Um, there have been other articles that she has published that I just think we have to touch on. George Santos, you wrote about George Santos, Amanda, that he is the superstar that MAGA deserves. He is really the culmination. Uh, he's the ultimate MAGA. He is a self-created creature. Talk about your article on George Santos. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of the media coverage of this George Santos situation, this pathological liar who got elected in New York to Congress as a Republican, I think a lot of the media coverage has treated him as a scandal, yeah, but a situation that will resolve itself because there, there seems to be this assumption that he's embarrassing the Republicans, that he's going to lose re-election, that, this, that he'll go away, right? What I think a lot of that is failing to understand is that actually the MAGA media has embraced this guy and they're trying to turn him into the next Candace Owens or Dan Bongino or something. So even if he loses, as he probably will, uh, his reelection in two years, this guy is being set up to be like the next big Republican, like right-wing media superstar. And he's leaning into it. He's, he's on his Twitter, like trolling Republicans. He was trolling Mitt Romney the other day. He's been trolling Adam Kinzinger. Like he, he really, he's really kind of well positioned to, to get really rich and famous as um, a person whose entire purpose is triggering the liberals, I guess. Uh, another right-wing troll. And the, the fact of the matter is these people make an unbelievable amount of money. So um, I, I, he's not like he, he's not a joke. This is this is serious. Yeah. And, you know, I would have there was a time when I would have pushed back against that argument. But Marjorie Taylor Greene it's like she's found a recipe to print money. You would think someone who has been so outrageous, you know, that the whole Sandy Hook thing wasn't a hoax and some really offensive things that she said, but somehow she figured out how to use that craziness to inspire people to give her money. And, you know, the fact that she was sitting next to Kevin McCarthy the night he kept trying to become speaker and that, you know, Kevin McCarthy keeps saying basically that she's she's his gal uh, is because she is. It's not because she's crazy. It's not because she has a strange choice in coats that she wears to the Congress. It is because she has found out how to print money. And if George Santos has figured out how to turn his insane life into a way to print money, you're absolutely right. He is going to be a Republican star. And, you know, I don't know if you saw you say he's posting a lot about Mitt on social media, but there was uh, somebody, one of the networks caught him in the hallway after the State of the Union, because, you know, very publicly Mitt Romney said, you know, you don't belong here. You should be sitting in the back of the room, as opposed to when he figured out where the cameras were and he positioned himself so that basically he would be in the shot pretty much most of the time. And afterwards, he was like, you know, people have been telling me, you know, my whole life, people have been telling me I don't belong and that I should, you know, basically go to the back of the room. And I, I didn't listen to them then, and I'm not going to listen to them now. And I was like, oh, my God, he's made himself out to be a hero because this is happening rather than tucking his tail between his legs and skulking off somewhere. I am sorry to say that I think you are completely right that he could become a MAGA star. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you, that the sort of 
conservative base that gives these people money, that gives these people attention. All they care about is owning the liberals, triggering the liberals, just being harassing and trolling people on the left. They, they have an enemy and any, any person that they think they can, that offends people on the left or offends the mainstream media or offends our sense of propriety or decency, they'll back that person up. You know, that's how Donald Trump got elected. They knew what he was. They knew he was an offensive, nasty bigot. Part of the reason they like him is because they share his views, but a part of it too is that they enjoyed how upset he makes people they don't like. Mm-hmm. And yes. Santos, like his lying, his trolling, his glibness, it, it, it is, it's, it's hard not to get upset that somebody just doesn't, it doesn't care that somebody's so sociopathic. Like, one would think that basic decency would matter, but clearly not. Basic decency, like, something there knows that basic decency was where this was always going to go because there's no sure way to offend people and get under their skin than just be completely immoral. Mm-hmm. Somebody actually said that at one point when, when they were asked like why they followed Donald Trump, but basically it boiled down to he hates the same people we hate. Like that's their, that was their bond. That was what resonated with them. One thing I didn't mention to you is that Amanda is also the author of a book called Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals America and Truth Itself. Tell my audience about your book, Amanda. So this book came out in 2018. I wrote it mostly in 2017. Um, it was a direct response to Trump's election. And I think at the time, it, 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 it was hard for a lot of people to completely understand my thesis. <laughs> I, I think the book is pretty clear. I, you know, it was just that. It's like the, what the Republicans stand for now is trolling the left. They're a bunch of trolls. That's it. And the reason that they're this way is because they've lost all the other arguments. They've lost the argument on economics. They've lost the argument on social justice. They've lost the argument on climate change. They don't stand for anything and they don't believe in anything that is popular or well-argued or anything. Uh, You know, they want to cut taxes for the rich, destroy the planet, and be very unfair to people of color and women. And that, those are not, those aren't arguments that you can stand by. So rather than like defend themselves or try to make their point, they've instead just become this like group of people that only exist to sort of troll liberals and be pains in the, in the rear. And I think, you know, at the time when it first came out, people were like, really, do you think that's true? And now I get no skepticism at all. Like, they look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and George Santos and Trump's continuing popularity. And the realization is these people are completely empty except for their hatefulness. That is all they are. They're just weapons aimed at liberals. And, and I think in a lot of ways, their revenge from Republican voters on liberals for being right. Like they are so mad. They cannot believe that they lost the argument. They cannot believe 
that things are changing. And, and so it's just all revenge all the time. Yeah. Yep. And I'm one of, I think it's a minority, but I also think our numbers are growing. One of the people who believes that no matter how many indictments or lawsuits or other troubles he may face. I think that we ignore Donald Trump's presidential candidacy now at our peril. Uh, he came out of nowhere and overcame what were, should have been insurmountable conditions to win. And I think we cannot take our eye off of him this time around. We cannot make the mistake of discounting him a second time. And uh, anybody who disagrees with me should read Amanda's book. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Really enjoyed our talk. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Me too. We are going to take a break. We are going to be uh, focusing on the mayor's race for Chicago when we come back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You may have heard on this station that there is an election coming up February 28th. There are some nine candidates who uh, are vying to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. One of those who got into the race kind of late, but is uh, certainly considered one of, depending on your polling, if not the front runner, is Congressman uh, Jesus Chuy Garcia. He is an interesting guy. He's kind of soft-spoken, not nearly as um, assertive or bombastic as a lot of politicians, but he has uh, quite a following, a lot of support. Maybe not. Um, maybe he didn't get some of the same endorsements that he got last time he ran for mayor, but he certainly has a lot of backing. One of the big questions surrounding him, though, is what are his politics? You know, uh, Lori Lightfoot would have you believe that he is uh, too progressive to be a real bridge between, you know, politicians and the business community in the city of Chicago. Um, and other people are accusing him of not being progressive enough. Tonya Hill, um, February 6th, wrote a really interesting article that appeared on the Tribe website. That's uh, the T-R-I-I-B-E dot com. And uh, the title caught my eye right away is Chewy out of step with the progressive movement. Black and brown leaders weigh in. And I thought, we have to talk about this. So I asked Tonya if she would join us on the radio. She's just finished celebrating her birthday, so she should be relaxed and ready to go and talk politics. Happy birthday, Tonya, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Joan, and thank you for the birthday wishes. I appreciate it. <laughs> so who, which black and brown leaders did you talk to, and what did you ask them? So I talked to um, Congressman Danny Davis. I talked to former 49th Ward Alderman and County Clerk uh, David Orr. 
I also talked to Alderman David Moore. Oh, that's kind of confusing. <laughs> David Moore, uh, that's currently in city council. I also talked to Alderman uh, Byron Cincho Lopez as well. But what I learned from Alderman Danny Davis, for instance, and um, Mr. David Orr going back, I just reached out to them because they were in city council at the same time as Congressman Garcia. So I was really interested in learning about his path to City Hall, the type of work that they were all doing um, around that time, specifically Congressman Danny Davis, to get Harold Washington elected, because that's something that Congressman um, Garcia mentions a lot. So I was I was interested in like finding or going through that thread and just figuring out, you know, what types of what type of person was he? What types of you know progressive policies or things? Or what type of work were you all doing in the community at that time? And um, Congressman Davis kind of shared with me, you know, we were independent. We were running against the Democratic machine and trying to just create a group of people to to challenge that power structure. And did he say that um, Chuy Garcia was a part of that effort to challenge the power structure? Yes, he did. Yeah, he he. Did and as did um, David Orr as well. Um, one of the quotes that I pulled out from David Orr in our conversation, um, and he gave me a lot of really great information, but he was just mentioning, you know, um, Congressman Garcia when he was elected to city council in the special election in 86, you know, he was there kind of to help the city council that had just experienced a lot of division with the council wars and the white block of aldermen who were, you know, fighting against Harold Washington and his administration. So Congressman Garcia was a divisive vote at that time on on policies um, that Harold Washington was trying to get passed. And some of those he pointed out were, you know, getting the ethics ordinance or legislation passed and also the Tenant Bill of Rights, for instance. Did they, uh, either of them, talk about whether or not they think Chewy Garcia is a progressive. And maybe we should even back up because depending upon who you're talking to, I swear there are different different definitions of being a progressive. You know, some people think that being a progressive means that you are, you know, you are fighting for the people and you want the world to be a fairer, more equitable, more ecologically sane uh, place. And then, but the way like the mayor, the current mayor uses the term, Progressive in her world almost seems to mean anti-business. What what do you think uh, um, Chewy Garcia's sense of the word, or or even in talking to Danny Davis, what their sense of what does it mean to be a progressive, or has the word become meaningless? I feel like everything you said is are such great points about the word. I think something too that I would add to what you mentioned is that the word itself means like moving. And something that's not set in stone, I guess I should say. So adapting with the time, um, looking at what, having your ear to the ground to hear what Mm -hmm. everyday people need. And I think that's something that's key. Just looking at our elected leaders, like, are they really in tune with what community members are saying and not the interest of, you know, the wealthy class or the business class? Like, are you really listening to what people on the ground are saying and not only listening, but are you um, also being like a willing partner, I guess, in, in mm-hmm. the past too. But when I you feel spoke- like for, 
No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say for, you know, Congressman Garcia and um, just like something I heard from a source that I spoke with is that he represents a lot of the representation uh, aspect of it, meaning like people a lot of times will align themselves with an elected leader that looks like them. So identity politics, but sometimes maybe what they believe or their platforms are not in line with what you believe, but Mm -hmm. they look like you. So, so I think that's something that we're kind of like dealing with a lot now is like, you know, getting caught up in the representation part of it. Like, okay, yes, this person looks like me, but do they support things or have they aligned themselves with interests that do not line up with like bettering um, myself or, or the people in the city? Did uh, Danny Davis and David Orr give you the sense that they felt that um, now Congressman Garcia was effective back in those days when he was in the city council? I would say yes. They both agreed that that he was um, effective in his time as a as a leader, as a city council member. Okay, let's set aside for a minute the old farts who are my age, and let's talk to you about some of the people who are younger, younger politicians, younger people in elected office, or or younger, and of course for me, younger encompasses a lot of decades, but uh, people who are involved in organizations and activism. Who did you talk to from those worlds? Sure, so I actually went to a... Um I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there was a people's platform, a people's unity platform meeting. And that um, organization encompasses about 30 different organizations, including labor unions like the Chicago Teachers Union, SEIU Healthcare, um, neighborhood groups like the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, um, also defund CPD, Good Kids Mad City. So they all kind of came together and they have been organizing about around different issues, including like police brutality, around housing, around environmental justice, around um, workers' rights. So they had a had a mayoral forum, and just being there, I was able to get, basically, I feel like this story really came together after having attended that meeting. So while there, you know, I talk with um, an organizer with Good Kids Mass City, Miracle Boyd, and I also talked with uh, Rosemary Vega, who is an organizer with... Um, raise your hands and I also talked to some um some activists that were a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement in Chicago and have been doing a work doing work around policing and uh, mental health and um restorative justice practices what was um what were some of the comments you got from those folks when you talked to them Sure. So one of the big things um, that I just picked up on, and I was there with my editor, um, Tiffany Walden, we were there at the event together. And one of the things that we noticed first is that Congressman Garcia was noticeably absent from that um, event. And it stuck out to us both because it was seen like someone who uses the term progressive as, you know, an identifier would have been there. And the people that were there support progressive leaning policies. So it was just kind of interesting that he wasn't there because I'm just like, well, these are his people. No, why wouldn't he be here? So I asked, you know, some of the people that I mentioned um, that I talked to about, you know, how they felt about him being missing. And a lot of what they were saying was that they were disappointed that they felt that he was ignoring them. And that is kind of like showing 
to them, like who he is right now is not necessarily who he was maybe 40 years ago. And so what's your sense of what has changed in him? I feel like a couple of things. One being, you know, if we go back to 2015 when he ran, um, he basically got the green light from, you know, beloved CCU organizer, Karen Lewis, who was also thinking about running herself, but decided not to because she was ill. So she, you know, propped him up and kind of gave him the union's like kind of blessing to, to run. And he was their candidate. So looking at that and, you know, unfortunately, I mean, he did lose the election, but he did force um, Rahm Emanuel into a runoff at that time. So when you look at that trajectory from 2015 to now, it's just really interesting that you have in 2019, you know, supporting uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in the runoff election rather than maybe supporting Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who was running for um, office at that time, running for mayor. So Mm -hmm. looking at that and also considering um, even in 2015, he's done it and he's done it, you know, this time around looking, having a platform or a public safety plan that really is emphasizing more police patrols, more um, filling those vacancies with police. When you just look at the contrast, you know, over the last few years, and especially in 2020, um, organizers and abolitionists have been asking for us to reconsider, you know, how we're allocating funds from the police department and perhaps changing that and pouring money into communities to violence prevention, to mental health services, to help people get jobs and things like that. So it, it just, it doesn't seem to fit with that. If the movement is asking for these things and you're producing a plan that's like contrary to what they're asking for. Um, we need to take a break. Um, I am speaking about an article that was recently published by the tribe, T-H-E-T-R-I-I-B-E dot com, about Chewy Garcia and whether or not he is indeed a progressive. It was written by Tonya Hill. We are going to continue our conversation right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Writing in thetribe.com, T-H-E-T-R-I-I-B-E.com, um, we are talking about a in-depth dive into the background and the politics of mayoral candidate Chewy Garcia. The author of that article, Tonya Hill, joins us to talk about it. And it really is a deep dive. You talked to an awful lot of people, Tonya. Did you ever sit down face to face with Chewy Garcia? I didn't get the chance to, unfortunately, um, to to back up a little bit, uh, I was at the City Club um, event back in January where Congressman Garcia was, and there was a, a media gaggle uh, available after the event, and I was trying to get my question answered then, but unfortunately, I was not allowed to get my question in. Time was up, 
explicit that since January 13, I tried to schedule a one-on-one, you know, phone interview. And I understand Congressman Garcia is very busy, you know, trying to run a mayoral campaign and also Mm -hmm. a sitting congressman. But yeah, no, I wasn't able to, unfortunately. So um, we decided, our team decided to submit questions and hope that we got some answers to some of those questions. You know, you mentioned Tony Preckwinkle a little while ago. Some people believe that part of the reason why she lost her bid to be the mayor was because of her association with um, Michael Madigan down in Springfield. Uh, Lori Lightfoot also tried to paint Chewy Garcia with that same brush. And I thought, frankly, that Chewy Garcia answered it um, pretty, pretty well. You know, he said, I wanted to get things done. And in Springfield, if you wanted to get things done, you had to work with Mike Madigan. And I and I did. And I think that, you know, I think that if you are in political life for a long time, I think it's really hard to be anything but somebody who ends up in the middle because of the people you have to work with, because of the compromises you need to make to get things done. I thought it was really unfair that, you know, because Ann Burke had thrown a fundraiser for Tony Preckwinkle, somehow that made Tony Preckwinkle look like she was somehow um, a corrupt candidate. And um, that's why I was really appreciative of the answer that Congressman Garcia gave. But do you think you've talked to a lot of people, you've really done a deep dive into this. Do you think that it's possible to be in political life for a long time and not have to make compromises and not have to work with people who you might otherwise not want to work with? In other words, is it even possible to be a pure progressive when you've been in public life for 20 or 30 years? What do you think, Tonya? I think that's a very good question, but what gives me hope to that answer is just looking at some of the progressive leaders that are in city council today. And I mean, they haven't been in office as long as you're saying, you know, um, 20 years yet, but they've been in for one term. So, and I'm, and I'm speaking of, you know, Alderman um, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, I'm considering um, Alderman Jeanette Taylor and Maria Haddon and Matt Martin and Alderman uh, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. They've all seemed to be very still grounded in the progressive ideas and the things that they are supporting of. They still have their ear to the ground with the community members um, when people are organizing against unfair labor practices. You know, I see Alderman Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez and some of the other folks I mentioned, they're on the front lines with, with those workers and standing with them. So I I think it's possible, but I don't know. I think it's challenge. it is challenging, but I'm seeing, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm seeing like examples of that being something that can be done by the, the people that are in city council today. Mm-hmm. You've talked to a lot of people Looking back at all the people you talked to, who do you think are the strongest supporters, the people in Chewy Garcia's camp? Supporters of um, Congressman Garcia for mayor? Or? Yes. Yeah. The people okay. who told you that they they plan to vote for him or they're not opposed to him or they they think he's the best of the nine candidates. Was there anybody who who told you that? 
I kind of had one person who was on the fence about um, Congressman Garcia, but did say that they were interested in potentially voting for for him. And this was a resident, um, a longtime resident of Pilsen and is also a Latino. But one of the examples that he pointed to me, which I wasn't aware of, is um, until I started researching for this, this this piece was Congressman Garcia's relationship to um, what happened at Little Village High School. So the organizing that was done on behalf of the community to get the high school in Little Village. And he was there beside, um, beside, um, beside other, other leaders and, and movement movement folks, um, just like leading those efforts. So that was something I wasn't aware of, but he, he did mention that he was conflicted, wanted to see it happen, but pointed a lot to his history, um, as a, as a reason for why he could, um, why he would be a good candidate to vote for in, in the election. Were you surprised that there was really only one person you talked to that was like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a chewy person. Mm-hmm. Not really. Um, I think when I mentioned the People's Unity platform, um, the the actual event, it was just very clear to see um, that day, like how much support there was for Brandon, for Commissioner Brandon Johnson, Johnson. So, you know, the crowd was chanting his name. Anytime he took the mic, people were cheering for him. So I've been seeing a lot of momentum moving around his campaign specifically, um, but it wasn't necessarily surprising to me at the same time. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because, you know, this radio station did a mayoral forum on the 26th of January. And over the next couple of days, I was talking to the audience and getting feedback from people of what they thought and who they thought was the best and who they might support. And Exactly what happened to you happened to me. People were like that Brandon Johnson, you know, he's got a lot of good ideas. And and I was really surprised. I mean, not that I don't think he did a good job. I think that, frankly, right now, there are a lot of good candidates, people who would make a good mayor. I think I think we have a nice field to choose from. But a lot of the people who listened to it on the radio or saw the stream of it contacted me and said, you know, never knew about this Brandon Johnson guy, but I was really impressed with him. Wow, maybe he's going to do better than anybody thinks, Tonya. What do you think? I think it's possible. Um, I've talked to, you know, um, one of the people I interviewed in the story is an organizer, but she's also been working alongside his campaign to spread the word, to uh, spread the word about his campaign on the South side. Um, I think it's possible. Um, He has gotten, you know, himself on the air, I believe. So people are starting to to know him. And I also uh, have seen, he does a lot of uh, outreach. So there are private parties happening, you know, across Chicago where he's coming and he's, just really, you know, sitting down one-on-one with the people and introducing himself and his policies and his platforms. You know, I was at one of those um, in Bronzeville back in December where he did this, like, very informal um, but formal meet and greet with people. So I think it's possible um, just because I think his name is starting to, like you said, people are starting to really um, recognize him and get to know, like, him and his ideas. Mm Mm-hmm. 
with um with the writing of of this article are you um are you ready to tell us which candidate you would like to see in the mayor's office are you ready to give us your endorsement tonya <laughs> i'm not gonna officially endorse anyone <laughs> i would say though however to plug um to plug what we're doing myself and my editor uh, tiffany walden we pinned seven different uh, Q&As with all of the mayoral candidates, um, all the black mayoral candidates, I should say. And we got really into asking them how they would fund specific things that they're interested in and really just breaking down their ideologies and how the city of Chicago has shaped their politics. So I would say I would want um, people listening to this show that are, you know, Chicago voters to take a look at our Q&A. And you can find that on our election center um, on our website, which is the tribe, dot com. I think that's a great way for you to, for folks to get a sense of all of the work that we've been doing to try to educate voters in Chicago. What's your next assignment? Who are you looking at now or what, what are you doing? Right now, um, I actually, uh, as you mentioned on the top of the show, I actually uh, came back uh, from a few days off to celebrate my birthday. So that's, so I'm just getting back into the swing of things today. Um, but I have a question for you. Um, yes. Is there someone you're interested in or someone that you think we should all take a closer look at? Well, as I said, I think that, honestly, I think that the, crop of candidates now is really good. Uh, I don't think, honestly, he has a chance of winning, but one person I really like uh, their ideas and the policies they want to bring about is Cam Buckner, who I don't think, you know, he was one of the first people in the race, and um, then all of a sudden it seemed like everybody was in the race, and his candidacy kind of fell to the to the background, and I don't think he's been able to get the attention or the money that maybe he was hoping would be available to him, but I really admire the heck out of him. I think he's a great guy, and Sophia King, I didn't really know a huge amount about her before she got into the race, um, but I am so impressed with her, and she may not be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, but we have not heard the last from Sophia King. She's going to do great things. Those are those are my two cents. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just definitely um, looking forward to the rest of this month. It's been very busy, and I am looking forward to uh, seeing what happens on February 28th. Yes, yeah, so are we all. Uh, thank you, Tonya Hill. Uh, she is a multimedia reporter for the Tribe, T-R-I-I-B-E, Tribe.com. Uh, and she has a great article. And you can uh, also follow her on social media at underscore Tonya Hill. Thanks for being here, Tonya. D- pleasure talking to you. Let's do it again. Yes, thank you so much, Joan. I appreciate it. Sure. We are going to take a break. Yes, it's time for news again. We're going to be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. 
Zito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. By the way, earlier when I was speaking with Amanda Turcott from a salon.com and we were talking about Ron DeSantis's efforts to ban books. I mean, he really doesn't want kids to read um, school administrators telling the teachers that the only books they're allowed to have in their classroom libraries are books that have been okayed. Books that have been looked over and uh, the decision has been made that they are acceptable. And uh, since there's really no time to do that, nobody to do it and no standards to do it, really the safest thing is to just um, cover over all the books in your classroom library, whether it is with uh, paper or put tape over them so students know that those are not available for them to read. Well, that's not... We talked about that, DeSantis's Don't Say Gay initiative, where uh, if you've got a teacher who, whether or not they're gay, maybe they're just an ally, but they want to wear a rainbow pin or a rainbow T-shirt, um, t- that's not allowed. And even rainbow flags are being taken down. Well, there was a move in the Florida legislature. You know, Ron DeSantis has been battling with Disney Because uh, Disney opposed, you know, I mean, Disney opposed the whole don't say gay thing. You know, Disney is a big attraction. It attracts a lot of people of all stripes. And Disney doesn't want to offend uh, a major portion of their audience. Well, the uh, House, the Florida House has passed a law that would give Ron DeSantis more power over Disney. Disney has a weird deal in Florida where they are kind of almost like their own little political organization. You know, they uh, get some tax breaks. They also maintain themselves like Florida communities don't have to pave their roads. They do that themselves. They have their own fire department and they're governed. This whole district is governed by a board. Well, the Florida House of Representatives voted to um, give Ron DeSantis the power over that board the board that controls this district that Disney lives in and how it is run. Now, that bill still has to go to the Florida Senate, but um, let's face it, in in Florida, there's not a lot of people who are going to be saying no to Ron DeSantis. So the craziness continues in Florida. Let's shift back here to Illinois and local politics, particularly uh, the race to be an alderman in the city of Chicago. Sophia King, as I just mentioned in my conversation with Tonya Hill, Sophia King is running for mayor. That means she cannot run for re-election as the alder person. And one of the people who is in the race to replace her is Lamont Robinson. Lamont joins us now uh, to talk about the 46th ward in their candidacy. Lamont, welcome to our show. Lady B, I don't hear him. Well, you know what, Lady B, why don't we take a commercial break and um, we'll get this figured out in the break. Um, Hopefully when we come back after this, I will be joined by Lamont Robinson, who wants to be the next alder person for the fourth ward in the city of Chicago. He will be on your ballot on February 28th. We'll be back after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Sophia King is the older person for the fourth ward, but she is not running for re-election because she is running in the mayor's race. Her name will be under the mayoral column on February 28th. One of the seven people that you will see running to fill the fourth ward seat is Lamont Robinson, who I hope can hear me now. Lamont, can you hear me? Hi, Joan. I can. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> okay. Currently, you're the state representative for the 5th District. Tell me about that. Joan, uh, for the last five years, I have been serving in the Illinois General Assembly, uh, the 5th District, which uh, goes as far south as 81st and Jeffrey, the South Shore community, along the lakefront to Division and Lakeshore Drive, the Old Town community. And what has been the legislation that you've been most proud of in that role? The legislation that I'm most proud of is uh, making sure that uh, we remove lead pipe across the entire state of Illinois, particularly in the city of Chicago. We removed lead and paint in the 70s, but we have not been able to figure out this in water. And so we have a, a huge a billion-dollar bill uh, to make sure that we can replace lead pipes. It also has provisions for women and minorities to participate in making sure that uh, we do this correctly. You know, my audience at one point started making fun of me because I spent so much time pounding away about lead pipes and lead pipe replacement, particularly in the city of Chicago, because other big municipalities have had the same issue and they seem to have no problem. Newark, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan. Um, I forget which town in uh, a big town in Colorado. You know, they've they found the pipes. They replace the pipes. And yet here in the city of Chicago, we don't seem to be able to get the work done. Do you have any insight into that, Lamont? Well, Joan, that's why I'm appreciative of you allowing me the opportunity. I am looking to shift from being a state representative to alderman of the fourth ward. I uh, took a lot of drugs sweat and tears passing this historic legislation and the city that I represent has been slow to move this bill. And so I look forward to working with the city council and the mayor to be able to get this done. We have millions of dollars that have come from the federal government uh, and we really need to make sure that we have clean drinking water for our residents in the city of Chicago. Every time uh, the mayor's office has made a statement about this, it seems that the reason why it's not getting done changes. Um, we're, you know, we're doing some test houses to, to know, to make sure we know how to do this. Oh, there are laws that say that, you know, city workers can't work on private property. Those laws have to be changed. Oh, you know, we can't find a company that's expert in doing this kind of work. Um, do, have you gotten, what we you would say is the real reason it's just not getting done in Chicago? I have not been able to determine what the real reason is, but I'll tell you that like everything else, you need a champion. And uh, I look forward to being that champion around this legislation in the city of Chicago. It's a huge problem. And there's a direct connect to the health challenges, particularly with our youth. Uh, yeah. We know that we have issues around mental health around our youth, and I believe this is a direct connect 
to water and lead being in our water. This is a serious issue in the city of Chicago. Absolutely. um, When you make the change from uh, state legislature to the Chicago City Council, what other projects do you want to work on? Economic development is key. Uh, We have uh, some robust corridors in the uh, 4th Ward. We have 53rd Street uh, that has a lot of great retail. Uh, We have great retail in the Loop and Printers Row. But in the middle, in the Bronzeville community, in the North Kenwood community, we need to be able to fill in our retail. We need to not only have affordable housing, Jones, but we also need to have affordable commercial spaces. So businesses can, can expand, businesses, small businesses want to come into the war, and that they are successful. And so that is something that's important to me. And I also think that if we are able to bring in businesses, uh, bring in jobs, it will also lessen the crime that we seeing, which I'll tell you is the number one issue that I'm hearing from residents in the fourth ward. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an absolutely noble goal, and I don't think anybody would disagree with you. The question is how, and how do you pay for it? Well, I think there's a couple ways that you do this. The state has resources. Uh, I'm a state legislator, and that's why I'm asking your listeners, the ones that are voters in the fourth ward, to allow me to be their alderman in the, the next alderman in the fourth ward. I understand the state budget. I know how to bring resources back. I have secured money for a senior center. I've secured money for a community center. And I look forward to, forward to securing money for a retail as well as affordable and commercial retail. So let me see if I understand you. You're saying that to get this done as a member of the city council, you would go to try to get these funds from the state of Illinois. That is correct. I will uh, be utilizing my relationships with my colleagues uh, at the state and then also uh, working with my colleagues at the county as well as the federal, the, my federal counterparts. We all have to utilize our resources to move the city forward. And so I've been doing that as a state uh, rep, and I look forward to doing that as the next alderman of the fourth ward. Tell me about what you did to help keep Mercy Hospital around. Well, Joan, look, uh, for a year in rain, sleep, snow, sunshine, I was protesting. I protested outside of Mercy Hospital. I protested outside of City Hall. I protested outside of the state building. We did not receive much traction in the beginning, uh, but it made national news that how could a hospital that had been around for 100 years would even consider closing in the midst, in the middle of COVID? Uh, and so it was a hard, long fight. Uh, we had uh, the community uh, involved. We had the faith uh, community. Uh, we had also residents and nurses uh, that were out there with me. And we were able to save this hospital. When communities come together, when people come together, things change. And so that's another reason why I want to leave the state house and go over to city council. There are a number of people who are vying to get the fourth ward seat. What makes you unique? Why should the people of the fourth ward vote for Lamont Robinson and not anybody else? What makes me unique is that I have been committed to bringing resources back 
into the fourth ward. I started my business in the fourth ward in 2007. I helped uh, to build shops and lofts at 47th and Cottage Grove in 2009 that has retail as well as affordable housing. I worked with community development uh, corporations to bring retail into the fourth ward and as well as affordable housing again. Uh, for the last five years, I've bought millions of dollars back to the fourth ward for anti-violence, for senior housing, for affordable housing. I am a connector. I'm a collaborator. I have worked with people at all levels of government, federal, state, city, county, to bring resources back, and I will continue to do that. And so for your listeners that are voters in the fourth ward, uh, in order to be able to move our ward, our rich ward forward, I'm asking them to allow me to continue the work that I've been doing at the state, to continue the work that I've been doing prior to being uh, in the Illinois General Assembly, uh, to be able to, again, move the ward forward. There are so many seats changing hands uh, in the city council in this next election that some people have worried that there will be a real loss of institutional memory. So are you saying that because that's the situation, your experience becomes one of your strongest attributes as a candidate? Well, it does. Look, I, I've worked alongside of uh, Alderman Dow, the third ward, uh, who is the budget chair. Uh, who has been moving the third ward forward, and the uh, the a lot of our area is split, particularly the South Loop. And so I look forward to working with her at the city council. Uh, I have worked with a lot of aldermen that make up the 5th district. Uh, and so I have those relationships already. I do not need a playbook or owner's manual. I'm ready out of all of the candidates to get to work on day one, Joan. There has been talk that the city hall... Uh, structure needs to be reworked, that there should be a city charter created. You know, supposedly we have this strong city council, weak mayor form of government, at least on paper. But in reality, as you well know, that's not uh, how it works. And it seems that, well, if there have been a few voices that have said, you know, city council, well, you know, we should pick our own committee chairs rather than letting the mayor do this. That never seems to get a lot of traction. How do you feel um, how would you assess the current independence or lack thereof of the Chicago City Council? Well, let me give kudos to my friend and who also is endorsing me, Alderman Matt Martin, who some of the items that you talked about, he's been at the forefront. Our Matt Martin items, I know. <laughs> and Matt can't do all of it alone, right? And so you're going to have at least 16 to 20 seats, 20 15 to 20 new people coming in city council. And so that will be the change that we need to see in the city. And I believe, I'm very hopeful, Joan, that, look, uh, with these new folks that are coming in, we will be able to change, not overnight, but I think that you'll start, and we're already starting to see city council be a little bit more vocal and pushing back. And so, again, with these new seats and some of the work that Mark, Matt, um, Matt Martin is doing and others, I think that you'll see a more uh, stronger uh, council uh, coming up in the next year, the two years. Mm-hmm. One issue that's a big issue, uh, affordable housing and what we do about the people who are unhoused. What are your ideas on that? There are some great organizations in the city uh, that, that work uh, with those folks uh, and we need to strengthen organizations uh, that work with our folks that, as you mentioned, are unhoused. 
Uh, we also need to do a better job of working with our folks that unfortunately uh, are having mental health episodes, whether that be outside, whether that be on the CTA trains and buses. Uh, we need to be very serious about mental health. We need to either open up the mental health centers that we close and or support organizations and hospitals that do mental health. We know that when the mental health uh, uh, offices uh, have been closed, that we have seen an uptick around uh, crime. And so, again, mental health is a component of that. But then we also need to meet people where they are. If people are unhoused, we need to be able to meet with them and give them resources, whether that be uh, medical and or resources to be able to find them housing. Again, we need to meet what is your, where they are. Do you have a favorite solution, whether it's more shelter beds or whether it is um, actual housing, whether it's taking vacant city land and building little tiny houses. Do you have one particular solution that you are particularly fond of that you think is really effective? I think what's really effective is more housing, a more affordable housing, uh, more housing for folks that are unhoused. We have a lot of vacant land in the city of Chicago, uh, particularly on the south and west sides, and so we need to be serious about this and build housing for this community. We cannot continue to just push them uh, to other areas. Uh, we cannot continue to not give them the resources and the help that they need. We need to get serious about this, and we need to look at the state. We need to look at the federal government for assistance. You know, being a state rep is a pretty powerful position. Why do you want to give that up to be in the Chicago City Council? I want to give it up, Joan, because our city is at a crossroads. And we need folks like myself that understand Springfield, that is a collaborator, that really wants to move the city forward. I have been very fortunate uh, to uh, grow up in the Chatham community and uh, be a successful small business owner. It's because Chicago, Chicago has poured into me. Chicago has given back to me. I'm a public school kid. I'm a private school kid. Um, and all of these make up who Lamont Robinson is. And it's time for me to be able to take the experiences that I have as an educator, as a state legislator, as someone that's worked in economic development to city council. What kind of label would you put on your politics? Are you a progressive? Are you liberal? Are you moderate? Are you conservative? I would say that I'm, I'm progressive. Uh, and uh, that is that is another reason that I'm excited. There's a, there's a lot of great members in the city council that are progressive that are really pushing to make a better city of Chicago. Well, you mentioned Matt Martin. He certainly, uh, he, Maria Haddon, certainly seem to be leading the charge in in that respect. Um, have you uh, had a chance to talk to any of the alders aside from Matt Martin? Yes, uh, Maria Haddon. Uh, Jeanette Taylor is an alderman that I worked very closely with in the 20th Ward. I represent Woodlawn and secured about $20 million for a, a community center. Uh, we have not had any new buildings like a community center in Woodlawn in probably 30 to 40 years. And so I work very closely with Alderman Jeanette Taylor. Do you have a uh, campaign website that you could share with the audience so they can learn even more about you? VoteLamontRobinson.com. VoteLamontRobinson.com. And uh, finally, we've got about a minute left. What do you want this radio audience today to take away from this conversation? What do you want them to think about you, feel about you? Um, 
What's most important here to 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 get out? Joan, uh, what's most important is if you're in the city of Chicago or even outside, many folks want good government. They want somebody that's going to be responsive to move the city forward, and that is Lamont Robinson. So whether you live in the Fourth Ward or not, I'm asking for your voters to support me. Our cities at a crossroads. We need to have competent people that will hold government accountable and do the right thing. And that person is me. Excellent. Uh, sounds like a, a campaign promise, if, uh, if, I, if I ever heard one. Um, I wish you all the best, Lamont. And uh, Lamont Robinson will be on your ballot if you live in the Fourth Ward. If uh, Sophia King has been your older person, you're going to see Lamont Robinson as one of the choices to replace her as she runs for mayor. Lamont, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Joan. All the best to you. We are going to take a break. We're going to do a little bit deeper dive into the subject of affordable housing when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We've been talking to a lot of candidates running for a lot of different offices. And yes, public safety is something that everybody wants to talk about. That goes without saying economic equity, but also the idea of how to bring about more affordable housing, more housing for those who are unhoused. So let's do a real deep dive into the idea of affordable housing and how it works. Gail Schechter is co-founder of Skokie Neighbors for Housing Justice. She is also the executive director of housing opportunities and maintenance for the elderly in Chicago and joins us now to talk about this and in, in more detail. Gail, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, we, there's so much to talk about when it uh, comes to this particular topic. Um, you know, we all know that there's a real need for affordable housing. Lots of times, though, when it actually comes to trying to create it, you get this sort of not in my backyard kind of pushback. What are your thoughts about affordable housing and where it should be and how much of it we need? Yes, well, affordable housing is more than just building bricks and mortar. And that's a lot of what um, people think about. It's, it's natural. You think, oh, we're going to, to sort of build our way out of, out of this, this problem of a shortage of, um, of units of housing that are affordable to people of low incomes. But what we're finding in Chicago and in Skokie, where I live and, and have been active, is that it's more complex than that. There are people already housed, but they're paying an exorbitant amount of money just to stay where they are, and that's known as shelter burden. Or there are people who have disabilities, and they have a double whammy, as as it's known, where they might not be able to afford um, accessible housing, and I mean, the housing stock just isn't there um, because we have so much older 
housing in our area. So, um, so when we're talking about affordable housing, we're really talking about both um, people at the income level, but also of the supply of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and where where do we where do we do it? Is it smarter to build some new construction? Do we? I know there was a big controversy for a while because big developers in the city of Chicago were allowed to fulfill their affording housing obligation with off-site construction. So they're building in a ritzy neighborhood and they want to build, you know, luxury apartments uh, there. They fulfill an affordable housing quota by agreeing to go somewhere else and build those units. Is that practical? Is that is that viable? Is that a good idea? It's it's not a good idea for a number of reasons. The first one being housing equity. So we've talked a lot about the problems of segregation, of segregated communities, whether it's by race or by age, because the organization I run, we have housing that is integrated by age, intergenerational housing. Um when you segregate people by income, that's another that's another form of pulling people apart. What it does is it it actually um, it actually takes away from what it means to have a a strong community. And when you decide, or when a municipality decides, or a developer a municipality lets a developer put affordable housing over there. What they're really doing is just exacerbating uh, income inequality, which oftentimes is also racial inequality because um, people who are not white don't earn as much as people who are or or, uh, people with disabilities don't earn as much or single parent households, et cetera. So it's not equitable. So the idea of having mixed income housing is much healthier. It allows for uh, a building, a much more convivial building. Uh, The neighborhood, you know, it it, uh, promotes understanding, reduces fear, um, increases engagement. I mean, what we've seen a lot of in our communities is what I call vertical gated communities, which are these high rises, sometimes they're, you know, actual gated um, subdivisions in the suburbs where they have their all their own amenities. They don't even have to walk the dog with other people. Um, they don't have to uh, go to a fitness center at the Y or at the park district. That doesn't create community. That creates division. And it's not healthy for, for anyone. It's also not healthy for a democracy. Because when you have people who, you know, have their own little fiefdoms, there's no self-interest for them to get involved, except if, if they're fighting to preserve what it is that they, they have. And then, of course, the other side of that coin is when you create, like, public housing. I mean, we saw Cabrini-Green. I'm old enough to remember Cabrini Green at its at its worst. I mean, I used to, as a reporter, sometimes go over there <clears throat> to do stories, and um, it's it seemed like a pretty unhealthy place, uh, particularly for a child to to grow up. Um, and you know, even back then, I remember reading about other states that rather than sort of doing these huge public 
housing high rises. We're doing, you know, apartments or smaller apartment buildings or or better yet, uh, scattered throughout wealthier neighborhoods, you know, uh, um, um, an affordable house here or there. And that it was exactly what you just said, that it was better for society. It was it was better for everybody. It was certainly a better atmosphere uh, for those who needed the affordable housing than a place like Cabrini Green. Um, I, I assume that you don't think Cabrini Greens are a good idea. <laughs> well, certainly, you know, the, you know, it has um, it's been proven by time, by by uh, studies, by as you mentioned, the experience of families. And I should mention, um, a lot of people don't realize, this may be a surprise to many listeners, that the United States has not actually built public housing since 1980. It's been decades since the last built housing. Yes. So since then, especially since, um, you know, some people might remember the uh, debacle with the savings and loans in in, uh, the mid-1980s, People might also be surprised to learn that the uh, biggest funder of affordable housing these days is actually the IRS through uh, something called the low-income housing tax credit. So that's a lot of the affordable housing that we're seeing being built right now is financed through these tax credits, which in Illinois go through the Illinois Housing Development Authority or else uh, the city of Chicago has a tax credit allocation. And you see buildings that come up that really, you know, that don't look any different from any other building. So the the architecture is different. It's not as many units. Um, but the problem with these is that they have expiration dates. So after 20 years, they can go totally back, you know, up at market rate because it's, a, it's essentially a public-private partnership. So while the idea is a is a good one in terms of understanding that we need more, um, you know, we need better design, we need to have the housing be integrated into a community, um, we need the private sector involved. At the end of the day, it's really about it's really about maximizing the profits for for the developers, and that's a reason why I'm really like the concept of a community land trust, because that's when the community, and there is a structure for it, the community actually owns and controls the land in perpetuity, so it controls the cost, and uh, and then they allow uh, building on the land, which could be home ownership as well as rental housing. But uh, Or you can have a um, uh, what's called a deed restriction, that would make sure that the housing is affordable in perpetuity. But that's a lot of what affordable housing is. Now, the problem also with ending public housing is we just aren't getting the volume of housing that we need. So in the city of Chicago, we know that we have something like close to a shortage of 200,000 units. And there's no way that, certainly not the nonprofit sector, but um, you know that we'll be able to create enough units to make a dent in that. And Mm -hmm. that's why we need what we in Skokie are talking about, a holistic housing plan, not just around affordable housing, but around all housing. Talk to Uh, me about the Skokie Neighbors for Housing Justice memo. How did that come about? Sure. 
Yes. The reason that this came about is that for many years, since about 2017, the village of Skokie has been approving one luxury development after another. Um, we recently calculated probably well over a thousand units and more than a dozen buildings, which is a lot in a community where there's just 24,000 housing units. Uh, it's a community of 68,000 people in, in a ring suburb. And at that point in 2017, the village created a TIF district in downtown, you know, an economic development district, did a market study and decided that what they need is more luxury housing. Uh, and that's a quote <laughs> from, from the mayor. He actually said that, you know, when a number of us said, well, why are you, you know, why is this all going to be 100% luxury in this, uh, on this parcel that was village owned? And he said, we decommissioned a study and what we need is luxury housing. So, one after another, this is what's been approved, and a, a number of us residents have been speaking out, but always a little bit too late. You know, we know about it when it gets to the village board level. So when we saw that Westfield, you know, owner of Old Orchard, uh, announced that they were going to tear down the old Bloomingdale's and build a 325 units or so, um, luxury development that would be its own quote unquote community. And this in the midst, right by the expressway, right where you have workers, you know, low wage workers working right there. It's, it really felt like that was the last straw. And so we uh, spoke out in December, we organized, we spoke out and, uh, and a trustee, trustee Keith Robinson, um, actually said a, a pleasant surprise. He said, you know, I don't want us to go into the new year without creating an affordable housing policy. You know, essentially saying he heard what we had to say. So the village authorized this, what they're calling an affordable housing policy and said, and also the village said they wanted this done by the end of the first quarter of this year. So suddenly, you know, <laughs> from nothing to uh, zero to 60. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, uh, in the new year, we, uh, you know, started to mobilize people and their public hearings, That uh, two public hearings. And we decided, because we were concerned that the village was only doing, under their plan commission, two public hearings that were both at the village hall and both on Thursday nights, that this wasn't going to garner enough input from people. So we decided to create our own memo and uh, talk to one another, share experiences, look at the data. And uh, and we presented this last week, I think it was, or two weeks ago, to the village. There's going to be another public hearing on March 2nd, and then the plan commission will make their proposal uh, to the village board on March 20th. So, One of the things uh, that, so I, mm -hmm. that caught my eye about the memo, and this is something, an argument that I heard years ago when it came to O'Hare, that, you know, a place like O'Hare requires a lot of, you know, lower wage jobs to work. The people who run the, the food kiosks, you know, the, the people who do the janitorial work. Um, but, but near in the vicinity of O'Hare, there were no 
really decently affordable places for those folks to live. So it was hard to fill those positions because people were commuting an hour or more to what is essentially, you know, a low-wage job, spending a lot of time on gas, spending a lot of time on travel. And um, when I saw point number six in this memo that the importance of accommodating local workers, especially, you know, we want our restaurants to be open, you know, seven days a week. But that requires people working in the kitchen, you know, people doing the dishes, you know, people waiting the tables. And those generally are not real high wage jobs. And if you couple that with a long commute to go to some place where you can afford to live, then you always run into the problems of people don't want to take those jobs. So it really having having affordable housing near where the low wage jobs are and people ready to fill them. That makes so much sense. Gail, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Gail Schechter. Uh, We're talking about affordable housing, and we're going to continue this discussion right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. As we get closer to an election, you always hear more about the big topics of the day, one of which is affordable housing. Gail Schechter is co-founder of Skokie Neighbors for Housing Justice, uh, in her work life, she's executive director of housing opportunities and maintenance for the elderly in Chicago. That's H period, O period, M period, E period. We are talking about affordable housing and its importance. And I know, Gail, that you're familiar with the work of State Senator Ann Gillespie. I think she um, just introduced a bill about affordable housing. What can you tell me about that? Yes, we're very, we in the uh, housing justice and advocacy community are very excited about this. It would amend the state law that was adopted back in 2004, um, just when there was the big housing boom uh, with a lot and a lot of um, jobs moving out to places like McHenry County. Um, Just what you were talking about before the break, where you've got a lot of low wage jobs but you don't have the low-cost housing to go with it. So the state passed uh, an ordinance called the Affordable Housing Planning and Appeal Act that essentially said that having affordable housing in every community is good for the health, safety, and welfare of Illinois. That's language in in the ordinance. Good for the economy, good for people. And that every uh, community should have at least 10% affordable housing. What's happened, and they need to create plans, and the and the uh, Illinois Housing Development Authority would publish a list uh, every five or ten years. It, it changed in the course of the of the period since the bill was enacted, but essentially, communities that have under ten percent, which as it turns out are all in the Chicago suburbs, have to have plans and have to make uh, take steps to get to ten percent. Well. 
what's happened is that there's really not a very good enforcement mechanism. In fact, I sit on the board that enforces the act, except that uh, I'm a board of one at this point. Oh, dear. We have no chair. Yes. So uh, so clearly it's a law that isn't working. Uh, so what we've done is um, and state Senator, Senator Ann Gillespie of, of Arlington Heights, which is a community you know that is affected by this issue, is very passionate about housing. And um, we've been trying to figure out ways to strengthen the law. So what we've done is uh, she, she just introduced a bill this week about a couple of days ago that would actually expand, for one thing, uh, the amount of housing, the minimum uh, amount of affordable housing that should be in a community, because 10 percent is a political number. It's not a number that any of us would say, wow, that's enough. You know, <laughs> it's like, in a, you know, <laughs> um, a nor- you know, normal, regular communities have much more, uh, you know, income diversity than this. So we're looking at uh, the top uh, 20th percentile housing in Illinois. Uh, And we're also looking at uh, the bill would also propose uh, a more of a a robust enforcement mechanism with um, through the Illinois attorney general and uh, and also much more specificity about the timing because we the bill the, the current law says you've got to get to 10% or else if you're really low you can go up three percentage points or else you can have inclusionary zoning and say that at least 20% of, of housing in a new building should be affordable but there's no time frame at all for achieving it so we will now ask uh, communities when they write their plans to, to give us their timelines. So they'll actually have to, to do something. They'll actually have to uh, follow through. And, put, some te- uh, put some teeth in it. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, so this has been introduced. Uh, does it have um, a lot of support? How how are its chances for uh, getting through this current state uh, legislature? Well, we certainly uh, we're certainly hopeful. We've talked to a number of allies. We've uh, so when I say we, it's uh, Housing Action Illinois, Chicago Area Fair Housing Alliance. We've talked to. Uh, Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning and Business and Professional People for the Public Interest. And, uh, um, you know, right now we're we're just looking for ways to spread the word and, and get some support. We've also been going to the League of Women Voters. Hmm. Interesting. Mixed income housing, it, it matters. And if we don't do anything about it, uh, in you know, we'll get the extremes, which is, uh, cities or towns with, you know, low-wage jobs and high-rent apartment complexes or expensive homes and, and not much in between. Yeah. And uh, and the environment is also a big, uh, a big loser in that equation. It's an interesting issue, and uh, I think it's one that people are really waking up to, maybe like they never woke up to it before. Especially, I think the pandemic brought a lot of this need into really sharp focus. 
And um, people who live in even the wealthier areas, they're like, well, what do you mean? You know, my restaurant isn't open for dinner on Friday anymore, only for a lunch. Well, you know, we can't find the people. And, you know, it's um, it's important that the people who are willing to take those jobs don't have to be made to jump through too many hoops, like driving an hour, hour and a half to to do it. And um, and I think that everybody benefits. I think that everybody benefits from a mixed use neighborhood and a mixed use building. Uh, Gail, I'm so pleased to talk to you. I think the work you're doing is really important. Please, you've got, uh, you know how to connect with us now. Let us know as this moves forward and when there are developments. We'd like to have you back on to talk to them, to talk to us about them. Well, thank you. We'd, I'd be glad to come back on. It's all, uh, it's all live. Yeah. All very exciting. Yeah. As we speak, Gail Schechter, uh, thank you for joining us. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Santita is going to kick things off tomorrow. It is fr- uh, at 6 a.m. That was useful. Um, it is Friday tomorrow. So remember, we're going to be talking about the news of the day, the news of the week. I'm going to play for you some of the highlights of the sound bites. We will, of course, be talking about the State of the Union and other things with you, my friends, the audience. Oh, and we're going to have Paul Vallis on from 3.30 to 4. Any questions uh, for the candidate, feel free to text them or email them to me. That's it for me. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. <laughs>